0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thank you for joining us for this special live edition of Political Rewind. We thought that it was important that we come to you live after the inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden, uh, which took place at noon this afternoon, as all of you know by now. Um, All inaugurations are historic. Uh, This one, I think it's safe to say particularly so because of the conditions that uh, the country is dealing with uh, right now. And um, also because we have the first uh, 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 woman, female, Vice President, now uh, sworn in to her office, first African-American, first uh, Asian, South Asian-American. So it's been a remarkable day, and we want to talk about it with our panel, our special panel, uh, this afternoon. Um, So we're joined uh, for the live show by uh, Representative James Beverly of Macon. Uh, Representative Beverly is now the minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives, filling a position that Stacey Abrams once held and which catapulted her to uh, a spectacular political success uh, over the last uh, number of years. Representative Beverly, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having me on, Bill. Thank you.
1: I look forward to hearing your comments about the inauguration, about the Biden speech. And as I I do, uh, hearing from uh, uh, Riley Bunch, who is the State House reporter for CNHI News, reporting for uh, their newspapers across the state of Georgia? Uh, Heath Garrett, a longtime Republican strategist and close confidant and personal advisor to former Senator Johnny Isaacson. And uh, Alan Abramowitz, professor of political science at Emory University. Thank you all so much for being here today um let let me do this we're going to play a number of sound bites from the speech so before i bring the panel in to offer their general comments on the inauguration let me play you uh something that biden said early in his speech uh because he basically lists in a broad way the kind of problems he's aware the country is facing right now let's listen
3: Few people in our nation's history have been more challenged or found a time more challenging or difficult than the time we're in now. Once-in-a-century virus that silently stalks the country has taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice, some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. A cry for survival comes from the planet itself, a cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism, that we must confront and we will defeat.
1: Uh, James Beverly, I thought he did a pretty fair job of laying out the problems that he uh, believes he's gonna have to confront as quickly as possible.
2: Yeah, he did. Um, And it it was phenomenal. You know, as he was talking, uh, I was sort of reminded of just his history and what he brings to the table as a president. Um, it's amazing to hear a president talk about white supremacy, to talk about 400 years in the making for justice for all. Um, it was phenomenal. And, and quite frankly, uh, Bill, I, you know, when he said that, I just started crying, man. And I, and I probably uh, have cried more at an inaugural, inaugural speech today than I ever have in my entire life. And, um, it, was, it, was, it was remarkable. It's a great day to be an American and have an American president address head on the issues that we face uh, that we face right now.
1: You know, Ellen, there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, uh, James Beverly said it, too. Uh, The same thing that uh, Amelia Sam and I commented on when we were listening to the speech, we were sending messages back and forth. It was fascinating that Joe Biden decided to mention white supremacy, extremism, in this inaugural speech, Ellen.
4: It was striking. I I think that, uh, I mean, clearly the events that took place two weeks ago uh, at that very location uh, were, were on his mind, and I think were on the minds of many of those in attendance today and many of the participants in, in the inauguration. Um, and so I, I think it was important for him to address not only the, uh, that, the event itself and, and, and the disruption uh, and violence, but, but also the underlying root causes uh, of that. And, uh, and just, just one of the many difficult Challenges that Biden is going to have to deal with uh, uh, in, in the next two years, and, and it's it's a daunting task. It
5: really is. Heath, Bill, you know, uh, as a as a Republican who's worked for Johnny Isakson all these years, uh, I listen to that and and think, a how tragic it is that in 2020 the president at an inauguration had to talk about white supremacy, but we would agree that it was uh, an important thing to, to pick up. And if he is going to, ha- we all hope and pray that he is able to help unite the country and, and move forward and uh, that he's magnanimous in victory and that he does that. And, and look, as a, as a son of the South, uh, it disappoints me that, that we're having to talk about that the way we are. But in reality, uh, I think most Republicans agree with Democrats that what was seen on January the 6th and what we've seen in social media and what we've seen tearing across our communities where we had made great strides and see, we seem to have gone backwards uh, in the last few years in particular. And uh, we all join with him in wanting to eradicate uh, those elements of clear racism. And we have a long way in our history to go, unfortunately.
1: Riley, um One of the things that's interesting is that um, President Biden uh, comes into this office at – he said at the very beginning of his speech it was on this same spot two weeks ago that the Capitol was breached by insurrectionists. Um, And and his comment was it proved to us that democracy is fragile, but – we remain here. It it remains. We we have prevailed. Democracy has prevailed. That in and of itself was a powerful statement. It seemed to me.
0: Yeah, you know, I think the events on January sixth it shocked everyone. Even though we sh- should have all seen this coming. And if you want to really see the, you know, the stakes of Biden's incoming administration, look no further than the stage he gave his speech on today. We have. 25,000 National Guard troops, hundreds of them from Georgia, enclosing the Capitol security checkpoints, making sure no one was getting in. And then we have 200,000 flags of Americans that represent the crowd that could not be there because of the pandemic. So really just, you don't have to look far to see how, how the Biden administration is going to handle what's coming in, You know how they're going to figure out everything. It's, the stakes are very high.
1: Um, Alan. James Beverly just acknowledged that he, he teared up, that he cried several times during the Biden uh, speech, and I assume through the ceremony. Uh, interesting tidbit for those who were watching it closely, that massive Bible that,
5: that yeah. he took
1: the oath on, uh, it turns out—I I had to look this up because it was such a fascinating book—it it is a Bible that's been in the family since 1893— He has taken the oath of office on that Bible uh, in every office he's held for 50. years and uh, he uh, told uh, reporters that each of his oaths, each of the offices he took, there is marked in the book. There is a notation about it. There's a very funny photograph in the New York Times story about it. It's such a big, big book that when Jill Biden uh, held it uh, when uh, when uh, Biden was swear being sworn in in 2009, Dick Cheney, is standing there and Joe biden if you look at the picture is trying desperately to hold the book up and really is struggling (laughs) to do it but the point is uh alan inaugurations are always uh, or often as emotional as this one today but so let's take a step back what made this one uh different and perhaps in some people's minds special
4: well there are a number of things that made this one different and special of course some of the things we've already talked about, um, the events that preceded it um, and, and, the, and the threats um, the threats to, to a, a peaceful transition of power that were the result of the, the violent attack and, and also the actions taken by his predecessor. Um, but I, I think there are a number of things, you know, the fact that we, we just saw the inauguration of the, of the first African-American uh, and woman as uh, vice president, African-American, Asian-American woman vice president uh obviously that's that's a groundbreaking thing that's a really remarkable thing uh to have happen um you know the 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 crises the multiple crises confronting the country um that the president is going to have to confront uh and frankly the deep divisions that still exist in in the country uh, that he acknowledged um but they're going to pose um, big challenges to him going forward so So all this very, very historic, but particularly the the going from from President Trump to President Biden is about as dramatic uh, a change in in personality, style and approach to governing as you can possibly imagine.
1: Um, Let's listen to another soundbite. And when we come back, James Beverly, I want to give you the first chance to uh, talk about it. But I want everybody to comment on this. Uh, We know that throughout his campaign, uh, Joe Biden said his goal, of uh, first and foremost, was to unify the country, to try to bring us together, to bring what he says is decency and respect for one another back into politics. And so it's not surprising that that was the theme in his speech today, and also, no doubt, one of the greatest challenges he faces in the broadest sense— as he takes office. Uh, So let's listen to one of the first examples in which he talked about uh, unity and invoked President Abraham Lincoln.
3: In another January, on New Year's Day in 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. When he put pen to paper, the president said, and I quote, if my name ever goes down into history, it'll be for this act. And my whole soul is in it. My whole soul is in it. Today, on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury, no progress only exhausting outrage, no nation, only a state of chaos.
1: Uh, James, unity in these times is a tall order, and a speech is not going to accomplish it. Um, but is it a starting point?
2: I think it is. I think, it, you know, the president set a standard when he was talking. I was minded of a, a quote from Abraham Lincoln that I, I love. He says, uh, you know, I will study And get ready and perhaps my chance will come and it seems to me that uh, president biden has studied he's gotten ready and now it's not just his chance but it's a chance for us to actually lean into the real issues that face us and you know we can't have unity without having frank discussions around what plagues us from from getting there and i think that the president has set a standard a very high standard around unity that we all should just step back for a second and say, what is it that prevents us from getting there? How do we what prevents us from getting there in policy? What prevents us getting there in our personal lives? I think just having a man who's plain spoken, just a good just a good guy being president is going to set the standard for unity across America. And I'm ready to do my part in unifying uh, our country.
1: Um, Heath. Uh, We we know that Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar, uh, and Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri were the co-chairs of uh, this inauguration, which meant they both had fairly substantial roles to play. You mentioned right before we went on the air that Senator Blunt is a client of yours. And and I'm wondering, you know, Blunt has been a guy who has towed much of the Trump line. And um, so I'm wondering, as a client, if you don't mind, how you— would advise him in terms of how he should approach trying to work in a more positive way with uh, President Biden? Is it a matter of uh, a given piece of legislation? Is there a general idea behind reaching out to the new president? How how do you see that playing out with Blunt and other Republicans?
5: Uh, No, that's an excellent question. You know, uh, Senator Blunt is a, a client of our firm's. And he has a little bit of a reputation in Missouri of that like Johnny Isaacson has here in Georgia, where while there was support for policies and and certain things of the president's, he did find his times, uh, call balls and strikes where he could. Uh, But more importantly, Senator Blunt is a creature of the Senate, which itself is an institution. And he and President Biden have a personal and positive relationship that goes beyond politics and I think that that's important uh, for folks to know. He was a happy person to go uh, co-chair this. And I think he's the type of person who is going to reach across the aisle. And I think, look, we all learned in one way that personalities do matter in the presidency, uh, for good or for bad. And I think uh, President Biden's personality uh, may be fit for this very occasion. If we can match the rhetoric and the and the tone of unity, I think his personality does that. He's not a hugely, uh, overtly partisan personality. And so it's gonna take magnanimity on the side of our democratic friends, and it's gonna take the bipartisan spirit of the Roy Blunts and others in the Senate to uh, get things done. But uh, we're all hopeful uh, that we can move on uh, in in a positive way. Alan? Well, here's what I see as the,
4: the big, big challenge going forward. And that is, if you look at what Joe Biden is talking about and what he has already said he intends to do, um, there's kind of a contradiction between, on the one hand, he's calling for unity. And on the other hand, he's laid out a very ambitious policy agenda um, on a whole range of issues from climate change to immigration to, of course, addressing the pandemic uh, racial justice issues. And we know that on, on many of these issues, um, there are serious divisions, um, between Democrats and Republicans, and this isn't just about Donald Trump. Um, so I think that what, um, Biden can hope for is not that he's going to be able to overcome all these divisions. Those are still going to be there. And we're going to see some big fights, I think, in the weeks ahead over some of these specific proposals that he's going to set forth. But I think that what he's hoping for uh, and and, um, what may be more realistic is that we can perhaps see a a new uh, tone uh, to these debates, a more civil tone. Uh, And we can perhaps see less of the sort of uh, personal animosity uh, and attacks, even as we have these very a uh, uh, serious and, and I think very uh, legitimate uh, uh, disagreements going forward over exactly what should be done uh, about, the, about the big problems that we're facing.
0: You know, I think Alan hit the nail on the head. He's already laid his groundwork for his policies. We we know where he's going to stand. We know that that is going to cause um, division in between the political parties. But I think in his speech, he also mentioned to really important things that it will be interesting to see how he addresses going forward. He mentioned this rural-urban divide, um, which you know is so deeply rooted in the um, two different political parties right now. Uh, I think that was really important for him to mention when he's talking about this unity. And the other thing he brought up that I thought was very important was this distinguishing between fact and fiction that America is going to have to reckon with. You know, After four years of the previous administration, we're gonna have to come back to this, based on fact, legislating based on fact, policy, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out moving forward.
5: Um, actually, uh Heath, go ahead. You know, hey, Bill, is as we as Republicans are actually looking forward to a healthy, normal debate about these divisive issues that that uh, President Biden's agenda lays out, and I think Alan's exactly right, Riley. You know, there there is the potential for division, but I think that's going to be contained within a healthy, uh, normalized debate structure in Washington D.C. and hopefully on our airwaves and in through social media. And so, I think where you see these senators and the loyal opposition, if you will, on the Republican side. It's going to be around serious philosophical and policy disagreements, not necessarily about what the problems are in the country, but what are the proper solutions for those problems. And I think that if we can get past the politics of personality uh, and and move into that debate realm, I think we as Republicans welcome the debate on those issues, but it will be in a normalized fashion.
1: So um, I, I want to go into some of you know the, the 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 president has I think seventeen executive orders he intends to sign in this first day any number of them to undo what uh, Trump had done before him and I want to talk about those after we get to our first break in a few minutes but I'd, I'd like to just play a little more from the speech um, if I may and and one of the sound bites that I picked out actually uh, Riley is uh, very specifically related to what you took note of in the speech. It, it, It was, he emphasized on several occasions, facts, not misrepresentations. Let's listen. Politics doesn't have to be a raging fire, destroying everything in its
3: path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war, and we must reject the culture in which facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured. Recent weeks and months have taught us a painful lesson. There is truth and there are lies. Lies told for power and for profit. And each of us has a duty and a responsibility as citizens, as Americans, and especially as leaders, leaders who have pledged to honor our Constitution and protect our nation to defend the truth and defeat the lies.
1: James, as hard as it's going to be for President Biden to get cooperation in passing what he says is going to be a big immigration reform bill, that's a big enough challenge, but dealing with facts instead of misrepresentation may be the single biggest obstacle I would suggest that he has to overcome. We are not a fact-based society at this point.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, he's going to – and I think he set the tone today. You know, if you watch Biden just throughout his career, he's a guy who is certainly uh, introspective. And he – when he makes mistakes, we've watched him come back to the table and say, look, I blew it. And that kind of person is going to make mistakes. There are going to be times that he has missteps. There's no doubt about it. But I think that the general public understands that here's a guy who's an honest broker, that he realized that reasonable minds can disagree and that at the end of the day, that people in America are smart and they can make decisions that make sense for them and their families based on facts and not fiction. We're not, you know, we're not, you know, a scared nation. We're a nation of facts and reasonable minds, as I said before, can disagree. But the most important thing is we can face the truth uh, as a people and come up with some real solutions. You don't have to lie to us to make, to get it done.
1: Uh, but, Alan, what is the truth under under the circumstances we're living in today? I mean, we already know that the conservative media is going to continue to attack uh, Biden and, uh, and and decide for themselves how they want to interpret their version of facts about him Um Fox News has already cut back on their daytime programming, which was supposed to be the news part of what they do, and started inviting the opinion uh, hosts to uh, be a bigger part of their lineup. So Biden 's swimming upstream when it comes to trying to do what James Beverly hopes in his best wishes will happen, and that's right. to find some unanimity around what is and isn't a fact.
4: Yeah, I think, I think um, going forward, one of the things we're seeing already, and I think this is going to continue uh, going forward for the next two to four years, is that there's a kind of a war going on within the Republican Party. Um, and we, we, we've seen that just in, in recent days. And we saw that uh, at, at the Capitol uh, with, with the uh, uh, electoral count, with the electoral vote count. Uh, and we're seeing it now with, we saw with Mitch McConnell is now coming out and saying, you know, that, that President Trump incited right. that that riot. And um, uh, so, I, you know, I, I think there's clearly a division within the Republican Party uh, between those who want to continue going kind of in the same direction as Trump, uh, keep the party, uh, it, it, you know, uh, the direction of the party uh, continu- continuing, continuing, uh, 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 and and, and, uh, and those who I think would like, like to, to see the party go in a different in a different direction remain a conservative party, but really go in a different direction um, and we, we saw that you know in the, in the runoff elections in Georgia, we saw that division play out in, in the in the attacks uh, on the Georgia governor and Secretary of State by the president and his allies uh, and, and I think we 're going to continue to see that here in Georgia and, and across the country and it, and it poses a real challenge. Um, for uh, for Republican leaders uh, going forward and deciding how they're going to deal with with uh, with the Biden uh, administration.
1: Uh, Heath, I got to get to a break, but I do think uh, Alan points out something we're all watching very carefully, and that's how your your colleagues, your friends in the Republican Party, figure out. Uh, forget about Democrats and Republicans coming together. How do Republicans find a way back together after the divisiveness of especially the last three months since the election?
5: Yeah, look, it's a natural state for parties. Uh, when you lose the House of Representatives, you lose the U.S. Senate and you lose the presidency all in a couple of cycles to look inward. Uh, it's the party who comes back together and bridges the gap between base and investors and broads that that appeal up to fifty percent. So we as Republicans are going to have a little interfamily uh, intellectual discussion for the next few months. But I'm optimistic <laughs> that the uh, I think I'm more optimistic than most that uh, this gap has been uh, exacerbated by some in the news media, and uh, we'll we'll see some oh. new leaders emerge. How about oh. that? Oh, Heath
1: Garrett, we we got to mm. take a break. All, uh, uh, Alan, I, can't, I don't have time. Mm. i got to get a break in. But all I would say is I think, Heath Garrett, you are one of the great optimists of our time. <laughs> but we'll watch it as it plays out. Let's get to a break. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
1: I'm joined for this special live uh, edition, afternoon edition of Political Rewind by Republican strategist Heath Garrett, uh, Georgia House Minority Leader Representative James Beverly of Macon, Alan Abramowitz and uh, political science professor at Emory and uh, CNHI News State House reporter Riley Bunch. Riley, just a quick comment about the overall tone of the Biden speech. I'm going to give you... My impressions and, and see what you think. Um Biden was not, for want of a better word, speechifying. This was not a speech that really had a lot of grand poetic themes in it. It struck me he was very much himself in this speech today. He used the expression, look over and over again, something, look, folks, the sort of thing we're used to with him. He talked as if there was almost a spontaneity uh, to some of his remarks. And and it felt very authentic, which I think serves him well. Now, I think you could probably argue that President Trump was his authentic self when he (laughs) spoke, too. It's just a world of difference in the kind of authenticity they both represent, Riley.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I've listened to a lot of Joe Biden's speech after we all, and I think this was one of his better ones. I think what struck me when he was, when you say he's sounded like himself is he said, you know, look guys, I'm going to level with you. And I think this was the tone that kind of, you know, Gave a little blanket of relief to everyone watching and tuning in across. He didn't drop any bombs. He didn't, you know, didn't say anything like, "I'm new policies." He didn't push giant new agendas that he's going to release later in the day. It was really, you know, we're, I'm here for you guys. I'm we're going to come into this together." You know, his big message of unity, and I think it was the right tone to take.
1: Did you have that sense about the speech too, James? It was really him.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I did. Um, I thought it was. I thought I thought it was amazing. It was just like, you know, listen to a guy next door, your neighbor, talking to you, and uh, and it was just it's refreshing. And you know, just plain, just plain spoken, not speechifying. It just, I don't know, it's just very refreshing just to hear a guy just you know just be himself, talking to the American public, just like you know you're 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 his next door neighbor, and so it was very refreshing.
4: Alan, uh, absolutely, and and I and I think that. Um, in In being uh, himself, uh, I think that he was again, in many ways offering a, a sharp contrast with Trump. Not that Trump wasn't being himself, I mean I think Trump wasn't in many ways being himself when he gave his inaugural address four years ago. Um, but the contrast in terms of what Biden's uh, personality and trumps. and And the big contrast to me is the idea that what what Biden is trying to project here and what, what he I think projects very well is a sense of empathy uh it's that um i care about what's happening to er- everyone not just my supporters uh and 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 so that was why uh, i think they they had the, the whole ceremony surrounding the you know at, at, at the reflecting pool uh yesterday and 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 the remarks today specifically uh, uh, the moment of silence uh, in memory of, of those who lost their lives uh due to this pandemic uh, I, I thought were were uh, really nice touches, and and uh, I think would be very welcomed by the large majority uh, of Americans in both parties.
1: Uh, Heath, um, as he was departing Washington on Air Force One, uh, the remarks that uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump gave, uh, he of course referred to the fact that he won seventy five million votes. Uh, he said more votes than any uh, sitting president before him had. Uh, one, uh, it's understandable that he wouldn't want to point out that Joe Biden <clears throat> still beat him by seven million votes. I, I get that, um, but let me ask you: the voters who who cast ballots for him are still deeply, deeply passionate about him as a leader. But but do you think the Republicans who You work. And I don't want to be specific because I don't want you to put yourself in a corner. (laughs) But do you think elected Republicans, most of them for the most part, are glad his tenure is over? It gives them some ability to hit the restart button in some way, even though some of them continue to think they've got to be
5: beholden to him. Absolutely. I mean, if I put my political science hat on for a second, uh, Bill, I would say that. Yeah, 75 million was a big number, but you got to remember that of those 75 million. It, it, when when people vote, they vote for and against, right? In this country, and as a matter of fact, Alan might back me up on this. The biggest motivation for a voter right now seems to be voting against rather than for. So for him to claim that those 75 million, or for the media to say those 75 million people are fervently pro-Trump in the way that Donald Trump wants us to be for Trump. Uh, I don't think it's an accurate reflection. I think that's a reflection of he got the normal Republican votes that uh, Mitt Romney or a John McCain or a George W. Bush, and then we got the COVID bump in votes uh, everywhere in the country because of voting. That being said, I think that there is a little bit of Trump fatigue amongst even some of his most ardent base supporters and recognized that there were just. Moments every day where he couldn't get out of his own way, including maybe in his last speech here, getting on Air Force One, where he he makes good points and everybody goes, "I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you," and then he just has to go right across the line. He told us from day one he was a disruptor, and I think he left on Air Force One this morning as a disruptor, trying to kind of send disruption into the future, for both the Republican primaries. But yes. There's A lot of people won't say it, and I get that, and they they don't have to, but there's definitely a little bit of relief that they're not going to have to be explaining Donald Trump's going across that line every day all the time right now. Ellen
1: Abramowitz, uh, Heath Garrett could uh, be uh, a a public relations guy for you. You actually wrote a book about what he talked about, Mm -hmm. The Great Alignment, in which you introduced the concept of negative partisanship.
4: Yeah, well, yeah. Thanks, Heath, for the for the plug. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, and, and I think he's right that certainly um, among that seventy five million or so who who, who voted for Trump, n- not not all those Republican voters are ardent uh, Trump supporters. Uh, I would say this, though, I think the negative vote here, uh, the Democratic vote, was was very much of an anti Trump vote. And, and I think any, any Democratic candidate would have gotten it. What's interesting when you look at the Republican vote is that, um, you, you know, uh, many, many Republican incumbents ran ahead of Trump. Um, so uh, uh, even though Trump, Trump motivated a lot of Republican voters to come out and vote for him, the turnout, and, and, but he also motivated a lot of Democrats to come out and vote against him. But, but there clearly was a segment of the Republican uh, uh, electorate that, that um, found Trump off-putting and uh, uh, uh voted for other republican candidates uh and then skipped uh trump uh, and vote, voted for biden uh and and that's why we saw this gap it wasn't a huge gap, but there was a pretty consistent gap um, and, and and that's why republicans down ballot actually had a pretty good election um uh, at the same time that trump was 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 being defeated uh, so uh, there, there's, some, there's some hope there for, for Republicans if, if they can uh, manage to, to get uh, uh, Trump you, you know, out of the picture. Uh, and I think what, he's, no, he's no longer in the White House. He's not going to have that bully pulpit. He's not going to have that platform. And he's not on Twitter. And that's a huge problem for him in terms of trying to perpetuate his, his influence uh, o- over his supporters.
0: I think it's also important to mention with um, Trump out of the White House, we won't have this kind of Trump consequences for things for members of the Republican parties. We saw that in the Senate races. We clearly saw that, you know, when uh, with um, Senator David Perdue and Senator Kelly Loeffler backing Trump after the election, continuing to back it because, you know, their words have consequences. We saw that with our state officials who stood up against, up against Trump. So I think that that will also have, you know, a, a better impact on the party kind of coming together. There will not be this fear of Trump hitting you back on social media now that he's out of office.
1: All right. Um, got to get to another break. Uh, there is, of course, another very, very big story for the state of Georgia that unfolds later this afternoon um, when uh, uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are sworn into the United States Senate. It will actually be one of Kamala Harris's first actions as vice president, uh, giving the oath of office to our two new Democratic senators. I, I want to talk about that with the panel. Um, so let's take our final break of the show and come back and uh, do just that. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Our uh, panelists today, uh, Heath Garrett, uh, Riley Bunch, Alan Abramowitz, and uh, House Minority Leader uh, 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 um, J- <laughs> James. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting <laughs> 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 i'm sitting here suddenly having this incredible uh blockage it's my senior moment so james beverly mm-hmm. i apologize to you for that <laughs> it's been a long day uh and i don't mean you any disrespect at all so james and given that i uh, uh just uh, uh did you a disservice uh, mm-hmm. i want to get you on this first the fact that we are, are going to see the first Democratic senators uh, to serve together in uh, the, the, the U.S. Senate uh, f- since uh, in well over almost two decades um, and that one of them is the first Jewish U.S. senator from Georgia, the other is the first black senator from Georgia, um, what what do you say about those barriers, the fact that they've been overcome and what they're creating a majority for Democrats in the U.S. Senate means? All of that rolled into one, James.
2: Yeah. In a word. Wow. I mean, I am just I am so excited. Um, you know, Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff, and know them both they're good, decent men and to have Georgia, you know, arguably be purple in this moment but to send those guys to, to Washington to represent us we couldn't have a better uh, two candidates and now senators uh, representing us and I think it's just a testimony to Georgia right who we are as a people um, yes as much as we are divided on some political issues uh, we've come together and I think those two guys are going to represent us very well and it says bodes well for the future of Georgia. I mean, what other glass things are we going to break? I can't wait to have the first, you know, woman senator or woman governor and so forth. I mean, it, it's happening. And to be a part of that right now and to watch it happen is just, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So, um,
1: Alan, let me get you in on this uh, uh, next. Uh, so what we're going to have, of course, is a 50-50 split uh, after Ossoff and Warnock are sworn in. Uh, Mitch McConnell becomes the minority uh, leader, Chuck Schumer becomes the majority leader because, of course, of Vice President Kamala Harris having the deciding vote uh, if there is a tie on on any given issue. Um, That said, uh, while Democrats can certainly celebrate and Biden can breathe something of a sigh of relief that he's got a Senate that's capable of working with him, we're going to have to have some sort of, it's going to be a divided Senate, and there's got to be some sort of power-sharing arrangement, isn't there?
4: Well, you know, uh, the last time we had a fifty-fifty Senate back <clears throat> in the early two thousand, there there was in fact uh, a, a power-sharing arrangement worked out. Uh, it didn't it didn't last that the fifty-fifty split didn't last all that long, but. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they're going to handle it this time because, frankly, the partisan divisions are much deeper now even than, than than they were back then. The key thing to keep in mind here, though, is that what's crucial about the Democrats getting to 50 uh, is not so much that 50 votes is, is that, much, you know, uh, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to be able to do anything they want. They're going to have a majority assured. Obviously, that's not the case um, because there are some, some pretty moderate Democrats there, people like Joe Manchin that you know you, you can't count on on their on their support for some of the more ambitious items on on Biden's agenda. The crucial thing is that it means that Chuck Schumer now being majority leader means it means that um they they can set the agenda. They that that Mitch, uh, McConnell can no longer prevent issues from coming to a vote, um, and so it means that they'll be able to get these issues, uh, get Biden's nominees, uh, including any judicial nominees, and, and get his uh, key uh, legislative proposals uh, at least to get a vote. Uh, and that, that means if they can keep the Democrats together and or if they can maybe get a couple of moderate Republicans, you know, there are, there are a, few moderate, a few Republicans there who I think could be persuaded to vote for some of the items on Biden's agenda. So it gives them a chance, but again, it's going to be difficult uh, and there's no guarantee just because you have 50 um, that that those 50 are going to stick stick together. So Heath, uh, just
1: take one example, though, of what's going to what could potentially happen. And I'm not suggesting Democrats are necessarily going to uh, uh, introduce this, but there's been a lot of talk uh, about uh, whether or not to end the filibuster. Um, so Joe I, Manchin, okay. the Democrat. Go, 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 well, let me just finish, and then you yeah, uh, pick it start. up. Uh, the The problem that Democrats are going to face is that um, it, you've got a, Mitch, a, a Joe Manchin who's not going to support the notion of ending uh, the filibuster. Um, Mitch McConnell is going to be in a position where even though he's minority leader— Uh, If Democrats try to push something like that through, he takes his ball and goes home. I mean, there are still Republicans, my point is, still have a good amount of power, even though it's now a Democratic majority.
5: There's no question about it. And I was going to add, but you asked the question, Bill, the most important word here in understanding how the Senate is going to operate is the filibuster over the next uh, couple of years or a couple of months, as long as Joe Manchin Maintains his position that he's not going to vote to end the filibuster, then that means that in the Senate, to do anything, you've got to start out with at least 60 votes, and that means that everything has to be uh, bipartisan. So, I anticipate there being look, the founding fathers intended the Senate, right, to be uh, the upper house where the transient and motions of the House go to basically be settled out by you know more thoughtful debate and discussion. And I think that that'll continue here. If 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 President elect if President Biden actually comes forward with the parts of his agenda that have 80% approval by the American people and are really popular, he's going to get some wins here. Uh, I think if he comes forward with the more divisive uh, uh, positions, uh, that I think that Senator McConnell, along with a cadre of a few Democrats and a few Republicans, uh, will will stand in the middle and stand in the gap and will slow all the processes down. Uh, and will be to check on the power of the House.
4: Well, um, I, you know, I, th- I think that that's, that's true. Um, but uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that um, the filibuster has already been greatly weakened um, over the past few years. So um, there's still a legislative filibuster, but there's no longer a filibuster that, uh, when it comes to either executive branch nominations or judicial nominations. <laughs> Including Supreme Court nomination. So that is now strictly a majority vote. Um, and even on policy issues, um, there are ways of getting around the filibuster. And I think you're going to see uh, the uh, Democrats trying to use some of those where possible. For, uh, there's, a pr- uh, there's a procedure called reconciliation uh, that's been used on, on issues that involve uh, uh, spending matters. Uh, and almost everything does in one degree or another. Um, it's, it's sometimes possible to to, uh, to use this reconciliation procedure. And I think that, that that's what the Democrats are going to try to do. They're not going to be able to abolish the legislative filibuster, as you said. Um, but I think you'll see them trying to kind of uh, make an end run around it, uh, as, as both parties have done uh, in, in recent years. But not having a filibuster on judicial and executive branch nominations is a really big deal uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, uh,
1: James, uh, Alan makes a good point. The the two tools that uh, President Biden will have at his disposal are, of course, executive orders. As I said, he's already got 17 of them planned today Um, and reconciliation. So so he will have a considerable uh, amount of power going forward, but I want to ask you and Riley uh, to weigh in on a somewhat different matter If you don't mind um, because you both have watched them closely uh, I If the Sen- if the if the Congress in general is going to have two different kinds of democratic uh, 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 Philosophies the AOC's who have far more liberal uh, Philosophies for what they'd like to see a Joe Biden accomplish and then the more mainstream uh, uh, Democrats um, we didn't get a lot – we didn't learn a lot, I don't think, from Warnock and Asoff about how they might fall on, on, on many of those kinds of much more liberal issues and more moderate issues. Are they going to be Biden moderates? Or are they going to be AOC liberals? And they didn't – we don't know that from their campaigns, James.
2: Yeah, no, I, you know, we don't. But I think just the the measure, both of those guys, I think there's, a, you know, Democrats are, as you know, Bill, are a jazz band and and, uh, and Republicans are marching band. That's how we mm-hmm. like to refer to it. Mm-hmm. And so people are going to be ripping and doing their thing. But at the end of the day, the work that needs to be done, you know, people have lost their job through no fault of their own. They're going to deal with that straight up. The coronavirus, they're going to deal with that kind of stuff it's a backdrop that we find ourselves in that these guys are going to have to operate in. And one thing I know about both of those guys is that they're good listeners and they realize, they know what they don't know, and they have a lot of good teachers up there to help them. And so if they can just listen more than they talk their first, uh, first year, uh, it'll go very well. It bodes well for us uh, as Georgians. And so I think we're going to be fine. And I think those guys, like I said, they're great listeners, and they will adapt to that environment. I think they'll bring some wins home to Georgia for us as well.
1: Riley, you watch their campaigns very closely. What's your take on this?
0: Well, I think that's a very good point to bring up. You know, when these races, these runoffs came down to majority hold of the Senate, we lost a lot of the candidates themselves. And there was a really big shift in focus on, you know, getting the party hold of these seats, getting Democrats these two seats for the Senate. So we really didn't hear a lot of their policy stances. I think in the debates, they also kind of dodged a lot of their policy stances and on the campaign as well. So we know they're, you know, they're going to vote uh, liberally. They're going to, you know, but they could throw a curveball. We don't really know because we didn't really get to know about them in these races.
1: Um, yeah, I think Raphael Warnock essentially ran a campaign uh, based on his being a decent, ethical, upstanding individual more than anything else uh ellen i think you agree with that
4: well that's certainly what he, he emphasized to, to a great extent but i think you, you could clearly see um in in some of the uh, political ads of course the republican attack ads tried to portray both ossoff uh and, and warnock as being on the far left of the democratic party and, and associate them with the squad and aoc and so on but i think in reality i think you're going to see that they're both going to be probably somewhere in the mainstream Of the democratic party um they're not going to be out there on the far left with bernie sanders uh uh in the senate um but i think they're they're not the old-fashioned these are not your your you know your grandfather's southern democrats uh this is a new age and the southern democrats Mm. who get elected today are progressive democrats and they're going to be in that mainstream of the democratic party the other thing to keep in mind is Raphael warnock has to run for re-election in two years um so john ossoff is there for six years um, but Raphael Warnock has to start almost immediately running for re-election, And, uh, in, in 2022 is not, is, is not that far off. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see how he has to start raising money, obviously, but, uh, but also how he prepares himself to try to run for uh, a full term in 2022.
1: Really interesting. Heath, I'm going to give you the last word on the show today.
5: Well, and Alan hit it on the nail. I mean, the Senator Warnock's already in a re-election cycle, which has already started. And uh, that's going to be a great check on his uh, philosophical bent, for sure. If he wants to win re-election, that is.
1: Uh, we should point out that he has now been elected to the seat that your a good, good friend, Johnny Isaacson, held uh, uh, until his uh, need to retire Uh, a couple of, almost a couple of years ago now, or a year plus ago now, uh, Heath Garrett uh, appreciate your being here. Representative James Beverly, thank you. James Beverly, we need to get you back here to talk legislative issues in the weeks ahead. You've got a big agenda downtown, and so we'll do that. You too, uh, Riley Bunch, as you cover the Capitol. And Alan Abramowitz. we always love having you on the show. That's it for us for this special live edition of Political Rewind. We're back tomorrow morning with a COVID-19 show. Uh, it's time we look at the virus, which is completely out of control. What the heck... Is is going to be done about it. Until then, uh, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Please wear a mask. See you all tomorrow.